Welcome to Related Rich Radio. I have a guest, Alan Watt on the line from Canada, Ontario, I believe. And uh, it's been two and a half years, I think, since we last spoke, Alan. Uh, myself uh, and Brian Girish spoke to you. And uh, a lot has happened in, in that two and a half years alone, never mind uh, the hundreds of years before that. But um, things certainly seem to be speeding up. And I'm still, I'm, I said at the time, two and a half years ago, that I was surprised at um, how how many people hadn't heard of your your um, your radio program and, and the knowledge you had and uh, about the whole system. Yeah. And I, I, just, I just wanted to, to let you introduce yourself again um, to say how you became aware of the the big system, as it were, um, your, your, from your early days at school, from what I've heard you say. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure where about in Scotland you're from, but your accent's fairly close to mine, so I'm guessing kind of east east coast or borders or somewhere like that, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned before that uh, fairly early at school, mm-hmm. you um, you can start to realise things for long. So, I mean, if you want to just introduce yourself and, and say how you got into this, as it were, um, yeah. from way way back when yeah, well what, what it really happened was it was born into it we're all, we're all born into it it's just that we're we're, we're caught up immediately that we're born uh, with indoctrination of from the parents who don't understand themselves that you're, they're living through a big planned society a planned system a planned culture uh, that's always being updated and altered and uh, we adapt this is the whole secret to everything we adapt as the big boys know uh, as the Darwinians know too, to every situation, we adapt to the new normals, and uh, and the new normals can be pushed by mass marketing, cultural shifts, uh, entertainment, for instance, is a big thing. And I realized very, very young uh, that everything was simply wrong, because um, I, I lived in a very working class area. All the towns around me were working class, mainly mining towns and so on. And when you're young, you can walk in and out of everybody's homes with your pals. And in every house that you went into, uh, was any strain that you walked into, you'd feel the strain amongst adults. And uh, it was almost about the same things, basic, basic things in those days, which was basic money for rent, uh, 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 money for, for, for clothing for the children, um, food. Food was a basic thing, but very important. And everybody scrambled every week to make ends meet. They, they didn't have credit cards in those days, remember? You couldn't, if you're working class, you couldn't uh, get um, uh, loans from the banks for anything. Yet you did have, have that, what you call tick or credit, where certain people would come around the houses and you'd, you could buy secondhand furniture. Everybody bought secondhand furniture. And you paid that up on tick. The guy would come around every week and you'd give him half a crown and, you, and that was your ticket off, you see. So uh, this was normal, you see. And, and when you're in that situation, you, th- you say, is it normal? Why is it normal? And then, of course, once you, you get to, to, to school, uh, your real indoctrination starts. And you're given fake histories and everything else. And you're given uh, a history of conquest of uh, the British Empire. And I thought, well, if you've got this conquest of the British Empire that had been all over the planet for 200-odd years, how come everybody, uh, pretty well the, mass, the, the majority of the public, had nothing, you see? And that's when I went into to, to, to find out why. I had to find out why. I realized that we're living in a fixed income system. And the older I got, the more I, I, I validated all that because you saw the starting wages across the whole of Britain for different trades, occupation, for always the same. 
very low. Apprenticeships were a great con because uh, you were basically in slavery for about four or five years. Uh, you didn't get enough to pay for your bus fare to the work. So you needed parents that had extra cash to pay just to get you through those four or five years. Uh, things like that. And uh, it wasn't really uh, till, till much later they were getting a little bit extra cash for the very first time. Not because the big boys at the top that controlled the whole system wanted to. It was to simply keep the people a bit quieter and calmer as they made big changes in society. Uh, the happier folk are with their spending money, uh, more income, the, the less they'll, they'll object to the big changes that are being forced upon you, like mass immigration, things like that. So anyway, I realized very early on, as I say, that the history was all fake. I was lucky in a sense that I got uh, uh, the different scholarships thrown at you. Uh, and so I got access to, to better, a bit better education from, from the different classes, which only again validated what I already knew. And, um, and then I, got in, I, got, I was given permission to get library books from the adults' libraries and, and so on. And, and so I did, and I really went into them, into the reference libraries. Now, some of the libraries were awfully good because they had old books going back to the 1700s. Things like that. And I realized immediately that the histories we were getting taught in Scotland, for instance, uh, were completely altered from what was being written at the time, what actually happened. And I thought, well, that's probably universal across the whole British Empire system. And sure enough, in England, too, they're always getting it changed. Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland and, and Wales. And you catch on uh, that you're living in a planned system that's meant to keep the peace by telling you a lot of lies while using you, of course. And uh, I, I got older and all the rest of it. I got into different uh, fields of work and professions. But I also was always in the music business. So that gave me the chance to travel very early. And I go back to professions afterwards and things like that. But going abroad, I realized that the same laws that were being, being passed by national governments, say in Britain, were identical to the ones being passed at the same time by the national governments of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, uh, and all parts of Europe. Uh, and I thought, well, this tells me there's already a system running all of these countries, uh, working in concert, uh, above the parliamentary level. Uh, and, of course, it was later on I found out about the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And I really delved into that. So I thought, this is the key to everything here. I realized there's a big, long history to this organization, a private club, basically. Uh, every media mogul that owned the newspapers, television, everything, every journalist, top journalist, was a member of this private organization. Uh, they gave us all a reality. Other members were members on all the big educational boards that decided the curriculum and what you'd be taught and what you wouldn't be taught. They gave us our complete reality. And the history of this group was, goes way back before they called themselves the Royal Institute for International Affairs, they called themselves the Cecil Rhodes Group and Lord Rothschild, who formed the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, and, and the Lord Alfred Milner Group. They combined eventually and formed the Royal Institute for International Affairs with a royal charter to exist with the power that they had. And this system was to, to give to the public what the public would believe was the rights of democracy, while this group actually ran the real government above it all and managed it all. And this is still in existence today. Across the whole British Commonwealth countries, they still have their Council on Foreign Relations under different names, by the way, now that so many folk have caught on to what they are. They're altering the names of their organizations in some of them. 
They even have one for every European parliamentarian. They, they, mem- they belong to the, to the European International Affairs Committee. So pri- private groups uh, didn't really just hijack the system. They created the system for you to make sure that, that they would always run it. They did not believe in democracy, but they know that the people wanted more freedoms and a thing called democracy. It was a new idea, even in the early 20th century. Winston Churchill talks about it, and who was pushing it, by the way. So you, you find that uh, there's never been such a thing as democracy. Today, democracy is, ru- is run openly, pretty well, by big international foundations that all work and are all part of this Royal Institute for International Affairs, the Ford, Carnegie, and Mellon Institute, a whole bunch of them, so many of them. They're tax-free, tax-free charitable foundations with trillions and trillions of dollars each, some of them. They have hundreds of front foundations that they also finance through the main ones, and they run hundreds and hundreds of non-governmental organizations. So these non-governmental organizations are the ones that are told to lobby governments for planned changes, plans by, say, the big boys at the, the CFR, Royal Institute for International Affairs. And uh, from the public's point of view, all they, they see in the papers is, oh, a democratic group, an NGO group, wants a change here and a change there and all the rest of it, never realizing that these private NGOs, uh, uh, the top members, know exactly where it's all supposed to go. It's not for the good of the people at all. Uh, they use environmentalism to the, to the hilt. Uh, they've completely hijacked that. In fact, they started it up. And um, the top members in the NGOs even are on massive salaries, sometimes millions a year annum, per annum. Full uh, um, pension packages, the whole thing, like a government worker. And they know what their role is to lead their, their crowds. And with very, very good intentions, often the crowd follows. Uh, they're being misled into the great society, as they call it in Britain, which is communitarianism, a form of collectivism based uh, on all the studies they did in the Soviet system, uh, with what they call improvements in the Soviet system. The new system to be implemented all throughout Britain, for instance, is the flagship for the rest of the world to follow. And in this new collectivist system, there's a Club of Rome, another think tank, because they own all these think tanks that advise governments. The Club of Rome, uh, a high member of this, and they also advise the UN, uh, came out in the 1970s, Called, in a book called The First Global Revolution, and they said, they said that um, uh, the real revolution is led by us and all of our members. Uh, democracy will never work. See, they knew this from the beginning, even though they push it on us, because we like the idea of it. And they pretend it's there, but they, they lead it all. And they said democracy will never work because there are too many competing factions all demanding special interests and special rights they'll all be fighting for the big share of the, the, the honey pot, the taxpayers' money, you know. And that's already spoken for by the big foundations that run the whole system. So um, they, they said, uh, we can't get anything, the big plans done. In other words, we run, understand we're run by plans. Things just don't happen. The big boys in the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the CFR literally plan uh, the 100-year plans, just like the Soviets did because they were heavily involved in the Soviet system. The United Nations has 100-year plans, 50-year plans for some things, 25-year plans for other parts of it, social changes. This this change will be done within 10 years, etc., etc. It's run with military precision. And big international corporations are all members with, uh, with these foundations. In fact, many of them were funded to start up 
as big international corporations uh, by, by these foundations themselves. Uh, you find writings even by Albert Pike in the 1800s, who was a big, big uh, uh, player in international revolution. He was, a, he was a pope of Freemasonry in those days, you might call it. And Freemasonry, uh, uh, for the Scottish writer Freemasonry, it wasn't Scottish at all, by the way, it came from France. But um, he said in it, he said, we uh, shall guide the world down the path we've selected. And he said, uh, we shall, by using the stock market, which they created, by the way, uh, the stock market and all kinds of vices, he says, we shall become the masters over the masters of the world. We're talking about taking over the, the world's fortunes and business, etc. Uh, that's been done, but they have created real corporations in, on the way. When you look at the big international meetings to do with the future, look at IBM as an example. Every major corporation will attend any IBM uh, uh, big uh, meeting that they have. And they lay, they lay out the future. And all these other corporations that are associated with IBM and network with them are all part of this giant system of non-democratic systems, you see. What well, they leave, and I always use the term democracy as they push their system into other countries that haven't been in before. But it's under the guise of democracy, and there's no democracy at all. In actual fact, everything is completely rigged. You'll find that um, in the planned society, in the great society, etc., is Carl Quigley, Professor Carl Quigley, who was the historian, and who is all for this agenda, for the Council on Foreign Relations which is just another branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. They couldn't use royal in America, for instance, so they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. But it's the same group. Ireland has it too. And so does Southern Ireland, by the, by the way. And quickly said, he said, the new system we're bringing in is a, a, a system where professionals and those in, uh, and academics will, will, and academics will run the world. Professionals, experts. And he simply parroted other ones who were in the world meetings and wrote lots of books about it, like Lord Bretton Russell. And, and they, they, they said, um, quickly said, the new system would be a form of feudalism, a new feudalism. Feudalism really hasn't ever died away. And um, in fact, there was an article in, in uh, one of the Scottish papers this year, in fact, about that the feudal system of Scotland is alive and well where you've got really a, 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 a bit less than a dozen lords, going back to the Norman times, actually, who still own most of the land in Scotland. You know? So anyway, this new feudal system, he said, will have uh, the new feudal overlords who will be the CEOs of international corporations. Every government today takes its cue uh, for, in all matters from the big corporations, including, I would say, the institutions, the institutes, the private the charitable foundations and institutions that advise them where to go. So really, you have puppet governments. Now, those in government at the high levels all know this because they're all members of the Royal for International Affairs and CFR too. Quickly went so far in his books. And remember, he had the archives of their version of history because they fill in all the blank bits to do with what, why the wars were really caused what was to be gained from them, etc. He gives the history of them. And, and, and he said that, um, uh, that uh, wars have two, two reasons for happening in, in their philosophy. He said, 
not only standardizes a system across the world for globalism, but also it says you can get more done in five years of warfare, real war, in a cultural sense, than you can do in 50 years of persuasion and propaganda in peace time. And that's true. During wartime, the government steps in, it takes over agriculture and many other areas of society that were in private hands and smallholders' hands and so on. And after the war, you're in a socialized system. Britain went into World War II fighting national socialism, supposedly. Supposedly, an official version. But it came out as, as, a, as, a, as a, a socialist country. And, and it was internationalist. So the big boys use uh, wars mightily to change societies and are still doing it today. That's what's going on in the Middle East as they standardize the last few countries that will not join the World Bank, which was created and run actually by the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Alfred Milner Group. Uh, the IMF, which is also created by the Alfred Milner Group. And, and, and all the other, the Bank for International Settlements is a big one. Um, again, Quigley said, their own personal historian and, and archivist, he had all their archives, and he said, he said, um, eventually he said, crisis after crisis will be caused economically by del deliberation. Uh, and he said that um, out of this, he says, every country will be tamed uh, by the power of money, uh, by professionals, and the bank for international settlements will be the, the main bank for the whole planet. That's happened. And eventually the IMF would come in as the collector of debt and they would start running polit the politics of each country, which we already have as you go into the countries and, and they, they cut the welfare systems, they cut the health systems and so on, and they loot the country to pay off the debt. He wrote about that back in the 1960s. But he said, he said that um, since in that time, the 1960s, mid-60s, he said uh, there hasn't been a president of the U.S., or a Prime Minister of Britain or any other country in Europe that has not been a member of this organization with all of these goals in mind. He said, uh, since the late 1800s. He says, it's not necessary we get all uh, the rest of the politicians in. The other politicians are allowed a certain amount of competition down below. But all the top members and the Prime Ministers and Presidents are always members of this organization. And advisors, by the way. Very important with advisors because they really know the agenda. So we're living through a planned system. They're standardizing the world into the one system. And many players are, are on board with it, even the ex-Soviet boys, Gorbachev, etc. And Gorbachev wrote a lot about it too. Um, he said that uh, in one of his books, I think it was called Towards a New Civilization, uh, he wrote quite, wrote quite a few actually And they were written in the, in the very primitive uh, way That the, the communist leaders wrote, spoke to the, to the ordinary folk It was very child, almost childlike language you know? Very simple but, but he said in the book that uh, I'm, an, I'm an atheist, he said In an answer to a girl's question They put, they put in the book But he said, he says, we We, he didn't define who we were But he says, we are in the process of creating A new world religion For the future for the system they're bringing in. And it must be f based on a form of earth worship. And what he was referring to was the massive indoctrination to come out into the schools, etc., across the world, and uh, in, in, to bring them into a conservation, conservation, because it was a tie-in with austerity, uh, post-industrialism, post-consumerism, uh, 
as they bring you into the new society, uh, while at the same time they were raising uh, what were called third world countries up to the to a higher status that were to be funded completely. And they are, by the way, through the World Trade Organization, set up again by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Uh, so we saw it happen with China. Uh, Britain, by the way, most British people don't know that at the end of World War II, it was uh, signed into agreements that Britain would not just de-militarize, uh, but they would de-industrialize over a period of time. There was to start around the 19, late, late 60s, escalate through the 70s and 80s into a completely de-industrialized society. During that time, the people who lived in Britain were never told that when the factories were simply uh, disappearing, many of them were moving abroad, they weren't telling them that in the press, so thousands upon thousands, every week this was happening, getting laid off, layoffs, layoffs, layoffs. The, the, the suicide rate went through the roof in Britain because the youngsters had no, nothing to look forward to at all. And uh, it actually overtook Sweden for the suicides, way, way beyond Sweden. Uh, but the people were never to be told. And during this whole period of time, uh, they were setting up uh, the, uh, basically the new European system. Again, uh, free trade was always designed to amalgamate into a government for the whole of Europe. And they lied from the beginning. They actually admitted in the late 90s, when they had got the parliament up and running in, running in Brussels, they actually admitted after, after that, that, uh, that, and they read some of, of their initial charter for the first time. They said that the public were never to know the real truth behind it all and, and would be basically cajoled or lied to along the way until it was up and running because the intention was always to, to unite the whole of Europe under a, a non-democratic system. Again, falling in with the Club of Rome, etc., uh, because tremendous upheavals as they deindustrialized uh, the countries, and it certainly did. Um, and as I say, the people were. Margaret Thatcher at one point came on national television and said, There's a generation growing up in our lifetime that will never see employment. She says, Get used to it. It is a message for you for the future. But it was so important. Yeah. It was so uh, important. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, carry on. I was just going to say, I mean, it should be obvious to uh, to many people in Britain now and, and indeed Europe, particularly Greece, Spain, um, you know, Cyprus, all these countries, that, uh, you know, unemployment's here to stay uh, oh, under, yeah. the guise of, under the guise of austerity. And, um, you know, I was, I was in somebody's house the other day there and uh, just doing a bit of work for them. And this, this lady was talking to me about just bringing up things that was on the TV because she was just sitting watching the TV all morning, uh, mm-hmm. this kind of morning garbage and so on. And she said, oh, this drugs thing's terrible. What do you think you should be doing about the drugs, you know? And I said, mm-hmm. well, if they stopped growing them, you know, that would help. Because the, yeah. the report the report had just come out in the papers over here that the, the bumper heroin crop in Afghanistan, you know, it had been a failure of um, British military policy. But of course, it was a success of British military pol- uh, policy yes. because that's exactly what they wanted. Mm-hmm. But, um, go, go, I mean, going back to the whole... Um, historical side, the, the money, uh, the military and religion, the, the three of them tie together mm-hmm. in terms of the, the overall over, overarching um, control mechanism. Mm-hmm. And basically without money, uh, none of the other two would really survive uh, anyway. So, I mean, money is, is mm-hmm. the crux. Um, and as you say, it's, it's been discussed in many, many meetings and written in many books uh, in days gone by that money would be used eventually to basically bring everybody under the thumb, as it were, of yeah. the 
the international bankers. Oh, it's been done before, you understand. There's nothing new in this. And again, it's, that's why we're kept in such ignorance. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I want to go into. I mean, it's, it, it, has, it has been done before, and religion's yeah. been used before, and the military's been used before. Uh, in terms of, I mean, the military, I mean, we'll get on to immigration later on, but I mean, that, that was another military tactic where um, whole um, tribes and groups of people were just shifted from one, one area to another to, yeah. to basically destroy any semblance of a, a homogenous culture. In, in those in those culture in those countries, and the same is happening in Britain today and all over Europe, mm-hmm. and America and, and whatever. Um, but uh, I mean the, the history of money. I mean, we, we, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go, but uh, and as to when it started to be a the, the fundamental control mechanism. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to go into that? Oh, you can go back anywhere you want to, actually, and, and as, as far as what we know are given the histories of what they call civilization. Uh, civilization itself, if you go into what, what, what is civilization, uh, you have a written history, you have a leisure class that can only exist uh, when others are laboring, either through slavery, uh, which is all part of it too, um, to, to create that leisure class who's living awfully well. They don't have to go out and hunt and gather or plant or anything else. And we see that in Greece, for instance, and the philosophers in Greece talked a lot about it, uh, where slavery was quite normal. And... Uh, so it was the same thing with the empire of Rome. In fact, many, many of the top Greeks, Greek aristocracy moved and became the Roman aristocracy. Uh, they were tied. In fact, even, I think it was um, Aristotle's wife was given to him by a big international lender who lived in a Levant at the time. They were always tied in with the same people who, who always ran money. And massive wars were fought in ancient time to standardize money. Uh, so that everyone would have to use it. Because a lot of folk didn't use money, remember. They bartered for everything they had. And uh, when you look at the wars, even the wars on, on uh, with, with um, the Spartans, for instance, the Spartans held out for a hundred years. Everybody else had caved in uh, to stop the money system coming in with the people with the rules, regulations, and dominance, and debt, and so on. And they, hang on, they hung on to their iron money, which was a especially tempered iron that you couldn't crack or break or do all the tricks that the, that the moneylenders had done before with other kinds of gold and silver and so on. And um, they held out for a hundred years to stop that from happening. And what the moneylenders always had done is not do the fighting themselves. They lend to people, they go to kings and queens and bedeck the wives with jewels and complain. We say, my God, you know, why isn't your wife bedecked with the same stuff as this guy over in this big city state over there has? And, and they get them into debt gradually. And then, of course, the, with money, the introduction of money, you can get a standing army. If you don't have money, you can't get a standing army. The guys might plunder a bit, rape and pillage a bit, but eventually they just give up and go home and get fed up. Uh, but if you give them money there, then now you've got a permanent standing army. With a permanent standing army, uh, the money lenders could then use the debt of that country and force that country to war with the next neighbor to, to pay with the debt, you see. Uh, this still goes on today. And um, you find that the money lenders, the history of them is fascinating because even in the ancient times at that particular period, as they were forcing, even the Phoenicians, they were forcing their system across the, the, the known world at that time, they had slave colonies set up all around the Mediterranean. And they had people that, that, that were conquered by other countries that were in debt to them. And they used the, 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 they actually made a deal that would take so many slaves to in part payment for the debt you owe us after you fight these wars. And they set up these, much like free trade systems we have today. And they would, they would do these free trade systems with the Phoenicians run themselves, of course. 
and, uh, and they used other countries to keep the peace and international force, whoever the force was dominant at the time, Greek or whatever. And um, so they've always accepted slavery as a normal thing. The Phoenicians uh, uh, eventually even had uh, um, gold mines in the Ural Mountains back in that, those days. And they worked out that the average slave, which they had demanded in conquest by the armies or the countries that owed money to them and used their armies to, to, to conquer, they'd always demand so many slaves because they worked out that for, even for, I think it was um, uh, half an ounce per gold, they went through a slave per half ounce because there were no safety standards in those days. So the slave would die or get cave-ins and all the rest of it and the conditions. So they had a real going business and they studied people too, just like sociology does today, and behaviorism. And, and they knew too, uh, they kept statistics on, on the life of expectancy of slaves, etc. Uh, very, very efficient according to them. But this has never stopped. This, this whole key of money, created by, see, one or two groups down through history, uh, left to these, those two groups in the, their hands, uh, has to stop. If it doesn't stop, it's all over. Uh, it's simple. It's very simple. Simple as that. Uh, countries, cu- countries fought to, to, to create their own money, uh, to put into circulation. Canada was a good idea, a good example. During the, the Depression, it was the only country that didn't suffer the same massive debt and loss that every other country did, because the Bank of Canada was a real bank at that time. And the Bank of Canada printed its own cash, and, and it was backed by something. doesn't matter what it's backed by, sometimes it's backed by something that's, that's agreed upon. But the fact is, they, they spent it into circulation, and they sold it to the banks. So, so it wasn't debt money. It, it wasn't debt to begin with. They sold it, that paid for all and all the rest of it. Uh, then the banks could lend it out for their down. But they also spent money into all big building projects, construction, all the rest of it. And, and from all over during the Great Depression, they've sent up from the, the U.S. Treasury and from Britain and other countries to see how this worked. But they wouldn't adopt it because they were already really conquered those countries. And you'll find even when you go into the histories from the ancient times to the present, this has all been well understood. And again, religion sometimes, uh, even though it forbid usury, would always give the right of usury to one group. They still did that because they wanted money to circulate because they wanted the coffers to come back into the church too. Uh, and and so 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 it's quite interesting to see who's going to win in a system where money is, is made to be the norm and, and, and absolutely necessary, a substitute for planting, growing, and everything else. That's what it is. And you give the power to one group who decides the value of it to any one time, or the devaluation of it too. Who's going to prosper during thousands of years compared to all the rest? They're not allowed to use usury. Tell me, tell me that. It's very simple. You know. Well. Well, of course, of course, Albert. I mean, we're we're all still in the, the slavery system because uh, as long as you be taxed, then you're a slave. And, uh, I, I, and we're using the same system. We're using the same system, and it technically is run by the same people, down through history. And and no one asks why. It's for, it's almost forbidden. But the fact is, it's a it's a disgusting system, and it can, you can never have any kind of freedom of any kind. So it's all a show or smoke and mirrors. If you believe you've got freedom, and you're still in the same system now. Charles Galton, Darwin, uh, who the descendant again of, of, of Darwin, and um, uh, he was a physicist, a top physicist in the 1940s and 50s, and he worked on the A-bomb and the H-bomb with Teller. Uh, he wrote a book. He was a complete eugenicist, too. It runs in the family, obviously. But he, he, uh, he said he wrote a book called The Next Million Years, and it was written on behalf of the world's elite that already ruled. 
Uh, he said in the book that um, there's always been slavery down through history in one form or another. It says we, meaning the world's elite, the, that all these world meetings on depopulation, the system they're bringing in, and uh, etc. It says we are in the process of creating a new, more sophisticated form of slavery. And the slavery system is one where the people would be taught they had rights and they had freedoms, and, and so they'd really believe they were free. But in reality, they would think that everything's normal. You're born into taxation, as you say. You're born into paying off a previous generation's debt, even though you didn't, you didn't legally uh, put your name down. You weren't even born. So you're, you're, you're living in a constant, ongoing debt slavery system. Jefferson talked about this, too. Thomas Jefferson, it says, when, a, when any, any generation is born into a system and obligate to pay off, by law, a previous generation's debt, it said they should have a rebellion and overthrow it and refuse. Well, we're in, we're, how many generations have gone before we're still paying off the debt? Britain just paid off the debt in the late 90s for World War I. They're still paying the, the debt for World War II, uh, the Korean War, the other conflicts they had in Cyprus and other countries, and the ongoing ones today all over the Middle East for this global system. You're handed the bill. The average person and the generations to come are handed the bill for all these wars that, that benefit uh, BP, Shell Oil, and all the big boys that go over to plunder the Middle East as we pretend we're bringing freedom and democracy to them. That came out in the papers, by the way, in Britain this year where it was admitted uh, by the staff of Tony Blair that during that time, he says, before they even invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, he said, that the, the companies, because it was all ordained long before 9-11 happened, uh, they, they said that, that all the big boys from the oil companies uh, came in and had big, big meetings to see who would, how they would divvy up the spoils of war amongst themselves. Nothing new, and this is, a, this, that was, that, you know, this is the 21st century, and this is still going, nothing has changed whatsoever. So Britain's a great example. I mean, you, you take the conquest of India. Uh, the British taxpayer funded the whole, all the wars in India for private companies, by the way. Uh, the, the taxpayers in Britain uh, paid for, for the railroad lines to get used, laid down, which are still working, getting used today. And, and the, the, the systems that were to be set up for government in, in India uh, and so on. You, you, you pay for all of this for private corporations to plunder the countries and prosper. Uh, they did the same throughout, throughout Africa and, and every other country in the world where they've gone to. So you're left with the bill. That's what you get as a taxpayer under democracy and the big international corporations, but they're big players based in London and, and, and New York and elsewhere, uh, live in their massive mansions because they get the spoils of it all done through the centuries under Great Britain and the empire. The average person is left with a bill, massive debt, uh, and sometimes living in utter squalor, but always in neurosis and fear and worry and so on of what's, what's next. Can I get through today? That's reality, you know. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm 50 years old now. I've been working for 35 years, and uh, I'm certainly no better off. And, and I'm, in fact, I'm a lot worse off than I was 20 years ago. Um, yeah. uh, and many, many people in, at my age and, and older, uh, are in the same position. There is there is no uh, progress to be made. Shall we, to use that word, um, mm-hmm. we're we're kept at this uh, this basic level of existence. And uh, I've heard you talk many times about the 
the way it's going to go is that all all disposable income will be uh, well, it won't be disposable anymore. It'll be accounted for. Um, so right. you even get it, and uh, it'll be sent off to the the big electricity companies, the water companies, all the rest of it. Um, we'll go to um, a piece of music. I suppose quite appropriate, I suppose, because uh, this is this is called home, and uh, you know people are losing them right, left, and centre, which is a, another uh, example of uh, just um, theft, basically, of uh, people's assets um, yeah. deliberately. Uh, and by design, um, by the bankers. So uh, the bankers are going to be the uh, the global landlords at the, at the yeah. end of the day, and uh, will be uh, at their behest. So uh, this is the first reason. Welcome back to Reality Bites. Uh, guests Alan Watts on the what are we? Twenty first of November, twenty thirteen. And uh, we're talking off air there uh, about the the history of this uh, this whole system. And uh, there's a, a few people in the chat box had a few questions from colleagues of mine earlier in the day and earlier in the week about the whole uh, religious side of things. Uh, some of my friends are in Ireland and they're, they're well aware of how it's been used over there to to control society. Uh, not not so much nowadays, but um, it was certainly a, a big uh, player over the last century or so. But um, the whole the whole history of religion, I mean, is, is there any kind of starting point, point for where religion um, was uh, was 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 brought up as an idea of of how they could uh, control society right, outside the the money system outside the military, uh, giving them uh, a belief system. Yeah, people are naturally inclined towards a spiritual side of things, and uh, I, I think personally, it's part of a survival mechanism too, because uh, it all started in some tribe or other long ago. Uh, so it gave you a simple moralities and taboos that you shouldn't break or the tribe suffers, you see. And when you're living uh, for basic existence and sustenance and so on, you, you, you have to have basic rules to stop uh, any dissension within the, the tribe. Even, even mass promiscuity, you'll have unwanted children that have to be fed. But by whom? If there's no dads and so on, you know, you don't have a welfare system, etc. So you, you have basic taboos. Uh, which all worked very well, very simplistic taboos, everybody knows them, etc. You didn't need police. And you didn't have uh, to pay extra cash to, for a, a chief and a, and a, that lived like a king and queen. Basic chiefs lived like the rest of the public. They didn't have anything more than you did. And that way, too, they didn't get, couldn't get too big for their boots with a standing army uh, to protect them. Therefore, if someone did become a bit psychopathic, it was easy for the rest of the tribe to overthrow them and get rid of them. Once that system was overgone by money, because money brings in, again, uh, the Praetorian Guard type thing around the, the, the elites. And then in the next village, of course, you have the same, or town or city state, you'll have the same thing going on. And, and so you, they start intermarrying each other, and you have a psychopathic uh, rulership, you see. Because those who seek power and who are clever enough to be manipulative and, and uh, persuasive, uh, but ruthless at the same time are psychopathic. These are the ones who unfortunately get to the top in a moneyed system. Always will be. Always has been. Always will be. And therefore, they intermarry the daughters of, of psychopaths too. So there's a lot of hereditary traits there. And and the, the people can't overthrow them because they do have a big army to protect them, etc. That's been the way for an awful long time now. Uh, and the elite are firmly established. But again, too, some people's, uh, um, even the ones who ran the moneyed systems, had the same kind of system. that thought, who, They all thought they were elite, all the, all the, the money boys, the big money boys in times gone by. And um, it's very tribal, in fact, very tribal and elitist, right to the present day. 
Uh, and so we must never forget that. There are still tribes uh, vying for power today. Uh, we don't, it's unfortunate for the people of, of Scotland and some other countries. They can't see that so well. But you, you find that the most powerful people who, who still retain their, their real tribalism and intermarriage with their own all came from the same areas of warm climates, by the way, not cold climates. And, and you've gone to anthropology, they have a lot of reasons as to why that is. Uh, there was less people in the cold, cold climates, and, and uh, you had to be friendly with people you had never met before, little small groups, uh, for, for your survival's sake, and it was change of foodstuffs and things like that for your survival. In the warmer climates, um, tribes grew big, and, and they all vied with each other for power, and they all, they're all pretty well inbred. Uh, um, and they still do the same today, by the way. It doesn't matter where they go across the world, they still send home for their, for their wives or whatever. And, and that's never been answered yet as to what was to happen with all of that. But uh, we had once two involved in the moneyed system, it's right down through time. But in the Middle Ages, you, you found that um, when successful tribes that work collectively, and this is the thing too with collective societies uh, of real tribal peoples, they're very collective. They can work together. And when they go into other countries that are not collective, more individualistic, for instance, like, like say, Scotland or parts of Europe, etc., um, they, they, they always succeed because they're working collectively. They, they monopolize things. Very, very, uh, very successful. And that causes massive dissension. Uh, so when, when, when the peoples of those countries eventually recognize them as completely different and, and taking over, uh, and they try to have them evicted. And this has happened down through time too, even with the moneyed peoples. So you, you had in the Middle Ages, just prior to Luther, uh, different factions of, of people who were in contact with the disaffected peoples. And they started to learn for the first time about the, the religion that, that, that they believed in themselves and interchanged ideas. And uh, out of that came the first, uh, you may call them secretive societies. There was different forms of them. The Bogomils were one. They were the same as the Cathars. They were well-structured, and their idea was to cause dissension within the ruling church at that time, which was the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church in Europe, and, and to cause doubt, etc. Later on, they broke out under different guises, uh, different names. Rosicrucianism is one of them. And so you, you add mysticism to people who are often illiterate. All they know is their indoctrinated religion. And most of them had never read a Bible and, and in fact, weren't allowed to in some religions, Christian religions. Uh, and so they couldn't question anything. But, but they were questioning just through word of mouth by, by all the disaffected groups they were in touch with. And it got so bad uh, around the time of Luther I mean, Luther wasn't the only one uh, that was pushing for, for uh, a form of revolution. There was other groups too. When people started to get a, a, a hint of the fact that the religion they were following was really a, a structure of power control. It was a power control structure. They never, they never really thought about it that way before. They thought it was simply to, for spiritual guidance, but it was a power structure that was really meant to keep an agricultural society in a feudal system. Because the old idea of godhood was that uh, 
you, you had, uh, in fact, you actually saw this in the early Vatican. They, they had uh, the Pope at the top in, in, in a descending pyramid order, all the different categories and ranks of priesthoods down to the bottom. And they represented the heaven in, in a reverse form. And they also, often in their drawings and their paintings, they'd have heaven coming down, ascending down to, 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 to the ones below through the angels and then taking on to, to see a pope and then down through them. And actually it worked awfully well for us in a sense uh, for, for the education that everybody had at that time. It wasn't a lot. So it kept a kind of form of structure and culture that worked so that people wouldn't kill themselves all the time. And rob from each other, etc., etc. But it also, of course, from its inception, was taken over by uh, a, a power elite naturally uh, with the money, etc., etc. There's always elitism. And so the, over time, it, it beca- like every institution, it becomes corrupt. And, and so it, it kept all the kings and the queens and so on in power, often tyrants too. Um, and even though they said that, for instance, the Catholic Church was not meant. To, to be involved in th- things of the world. Uh, they couldn't help but be involved in things of the world. They wanted sort of peace and quiet and, uh, and some form of, of order in society because all structures are for, for order. Even the primitive religions that don't get taxation and so on, they still want order for their lives to work. But, uh, of course, confusion reigns when you end up with the money system coming in and people who don't belong to that religion running the cash too, by the way. So you, you also, so you, so you, in the Middle Ages, you had you had breakaway factions that started off with 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 um, ideas, actually got gotten from the money guys who taught them a form of Judaism. Uh, now these folk had only heard priests talk about stories from the Old Testament, but actual Judaism itself is a book of revolution. People don't realize that it's about unjustness. It's about being persecuted. It's about fighting and rebelling uh, in their history uh, against different factions of that conquered them, etc., etc. So the Christians, eventually, they're the Christians, a lot of dissenters, they had nothing to fall back on of their own that gave them a sense of who they were or how to rebel, or even the fact that they should rebel. So they, they adopted them, that religion, the Old Testament, the Christians did. And they had revolutions throughout parts of Germany. They took over city-states. They appointed their own kings and queens eventually, little tyrants, by the way. They, they brought in free love in, in the 1600s, in some of them. Free love. And, and it got so bad at one time, one of the guys, under this new form of what they thought was, was Christianity, that was in rebellion using Judaism, they actually used all the terminology from the Old Testament to, to rebel against the, those that they saw as conquering them today. And, and, and so, because they had nothing else to take it from. That's the only thing that existed. It still is today, by the way. And so anyway, they thought that they should all these, have these, all these freedoms and rights and so and really do as they, they, they wanted to do. Uh, and it ended up in utter chaos, utter chaos. And the established people around that, those cities would attack them every so often, wear them down over one or two years. And eventually there was a mass slaughter at the end as the folk were starved out and went into absolute chaos. They brought in massive polygamy. They forbade women not to have sex with all these different guys. It was, it was like the 1960s with free love. It was, it was incredible. They ordered the women they had to have sex with whoever man uh, demanded it. But these were, there were secret societies behind all of this. Even Luther himself realized, uh, and he was against it too, he realized that it would, it would put out his version 
of Protestantism. It would destroy it if he didn't turn against this movement. And he did. And he went on the side of the, uh, the authorities. He, he said the rabble can never be allowed to have this kind of power. And he believed they were the rabble, you see. But then you find the same things happened later again because of the revolution in England. People forget about the revolution in England was the first major revolution. And that's why you end up with red, white, and blue. Very, very important, that. But they brought in capitalism and the meanings of colors. It goes way back to Pythagoras too, a very old system, uh, etc. And you find that Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, uh, was in touch with, 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 with the Jewish people even in, in Holland to get a lot of information from them on, on what, what the religion was all about, you see. It wasn't just Joseph and his coat getting tossed in a pit and all that and, and making good, you know. And there was actually movements between some of these factions of disaffected people who, who were almost successful being thrown out of countries because of being, of being successful, but they had a lot of interaction. And some of them, some of the head ones, wanted to begin an assimilation process for the first time between Judaism and Christian, this new form of Christianity, which was based on the Old Testament. And that's what Cromwell based his whole theology on, the Old Testament, rules, regulations, rules, regulations, rules, regulations. And, and, um, and because of that, he was a ruthless tyrant, of course. Uh, the Puritan movement came out of it too, the Puritan movement, which a lot of them went to America. So a lot of things were happening like this that people don't even get taught to do, except they're very, in very high academic circles where they say it's safe to discuss these things. It's not safe, they say, to give this information to the ordinary people down below because they're emotive and they'll get angry and so on. So uh, yeah, the various revolutions going on, etc. Well, out of the Protestant movement, Again, you still had this basis. The Protestantism is condemned always to fall into the Old Testament for rules, regulations, because the New Testament doesn't have all these rules. It's a dilemma, isn't it? Because the New Testament tells you how to get on with your fellow man, and it doesn't. And there's no demand that you do. There's no demand that the man must conform to you. You see, or your idea of thinking. Um, the Old Testament is unforgiving in many, many ways. Rules, regulations. Uh, slaughter them if, if they're against you Slaughter anybody who doesn't agree with you The New Testament is love Everybody, including your enemies uh, and, and, and so You've got a real dilemma there So Protestantism is always condemned To fall into the Old Testament Because men crave rules and regulations Even though they, become, they go into absurdity And over-regulation On every possible area uh, the same thing happened within Judaism with the Talmud, the later Talmud, which is different from Judaism in a sense. Uh, it's nothing but rules and regulations about every possible topic you can imagine. And, and, and not even imagine. It's incredible. So Protestantism falls into the same thing. It's interesting for me to look at all of this and stand back from it and, and see even communism had a lot to do with this. Because they went into massive regulations, a form of socialism which was totalitarian with massive regulations on every possible thing a person could do and not do and so on throughout their entire life. Your life was planned for you. We're in the same system today because the elites at the top bring in anthropologists, they bring in, bring in all the professors of religions, uh, they bring in uh, historians. Uh, Arnold Toynbee was a great example of international socialism. He advised the CFR and Royal Institute for International Affairs on, on many occasions, top member, on all the possible things. Carl Quigley himself was brought in for the same reasons. Because they tell the elites, to, here's how we can bring in our type of world, and they use all of these methods and the methodologies 
to run what they claim will be the perfect society of obedience. Obedience is the key to it all. A planned society where everyone would be born under the Soviet system that was adapted into this communitarian and eventually be tested at birth. And they'll decide what you're going to be if they need you, by the way. If they don't need you, you will not be born. This is the planned society, you see. And and you will be taught when you are born, when they've tested you, um, what you're going to be trained in, and nothing else. You get taught just that, that one training and nothing else outside of that. Then there's no dissension. You can't be a problem down the road because you won't have the education in these other areas or the, the critical thinking abilities and knowledge. Well, I mean, we're, we're into... We're in- to Huxley's Brave New World in that scenario because you'll be born into the Alpha, the Beatles, the whatever, and yes. you'll be given your education perhaps in the same form as uh, as, as Brave New World where you'll be put into a kind of incubator and yeah. uh, this this stuff will be drummed into you while you're sleeping or in, a, in some sort of um, coma state or, or whatever. And, well, um, it's even beyond that. We're, we're, we're not far off it. We're not far off it. We're not far off it with... Uh, carry on, carry on. Yeah, you, you find that, uh, for instance, uh, I don't know if you've read the writings between uh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, uh, and uh, and Orwell, George Orwell. Uh, there's a book out with their writings, because they exchanged all this information about what kind of system they would bring in. And they belonged to international meetings with the elites, of course. Intergenerationally, by the way, it wasn't just with them. It was always in the same family groups down through, through, through the centuries, you know. Uh, and and, and they belo- they'd already worked out all this way ahead. They knew that the jackboot-type thug thing might be important. And we're going through that right now. We've got a combination of both on the go. We have total uh, information network systems, total control uh, on every one of us. As we're going through, under the guise of international terrorism, we're going through the force of the, all the black-clad guys across the world. It doesn't, doesn't matter where you look, the, the cops all look like military troops, which they are actually today. So the fear factor is used to force us into... But it's where black, too, is the color of the executioner. That's why they had them dressed in black. It's a fearful thing. Always works from psychology, regardless of the time period. Anyway, the hangman wore it, too, remember, in the hood. So anyway, that's what we have today uh, to make us fearful. As, when we're fearful, we turn to government, the abuser. We turn to government to help us. And they've got all these professionals telling us how to behave and not to worry. And TV's a big tool on it, of course. Uh, the BBC is the world example of how you control folk and, and, and prepare them through fiction and non-fiction for the future. So we're already in that system. It's a perfectly controlled society. The Gerfeg, as you know, was introduced in Scotland and caused a little bit of an uproar for those who followed it. Uh, just, Gerfeg, just, just, just for those who don't know, that stands for getting it right for every child. Yes. And now it's mandatory that every child born, regardless of your class system or anything else, doesn't matter, uh, has a government-appointed bureaucrat, so, social worker or whatever, that must come from the age of about two months onwards and test you in different ways. And you must give access to your child, to this, this bureaucrat, whenever they demand entrance into your home. So they're a, so a legally appointed guardian. This is how they get it through. It sounds better, doesn't it? And, and they test them for even things like racist tendencies from, from the age of a few months onwards things like this, to make sure that if they detect any possible thought pattern in that child and lines of questioning from an intelligent child, they can nip it in the bud quickly and recondition them, you might say, tweak them here and tweak them there to get them into the standard 
clone-type system that they want to turn out. Uh, predictable, a very predictable uh, child, the alternative predictable adult, with all the proper indoctrinations, and that's all they'll be able to spout in, in public, in polite society, is the proper, accepted, authorised uh, indoctrinations. That's all that will come out of them. And this is, isn't just in Scotland, it's in England, too, under a different name. And the UN is behind it too. Even Sarkozy, that was the president of France, was a big uh, proponent and designer of this system for Scotland. And Scotland is a test bed for tweaking it all. Because Scotland, by the way, uh, the Scots were, were, were slated for being eradicated by some of the top um, economists of uh, even the 1800s. Uh, John Stuart Mills, Mill. Uh, talked to, they had all the different peoples listed uh, and according to ascending and descending orders of importance under a eugenical scheme and a Darwinistic scheme. And they said that the Scots and the Irish would have to be eliminated. H.G. Wells wrote about that too in his book, A History of the World. It's a two-book volume than the original one. And, uh, and he said the Scots and the Irish. He says these people tend to rebel. They don't like being conquered. Uh, so, it's, uh, and it's true that I always say the Scots have an uh, an allergy against tyranny, you know, and 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 so they'd have to be eliminated and wiped out. Hence, the push in those countries uh, to definitely uh, multiculturalize uh, them, and eventually, uh, not just. I mean, very few of them are having children now, as you know. I couldn't believe the massive attack on Scotland. Uh, during uh, the late 70s and sped up through the 80s like crazy as they brought in a massive immigration from India, settled in Edinburgh and places like this, and in with it came the massive drug problems and and heroin because the networks were all coming in with them. The governments knew this too before they uh, brought them all in as part of the destruction process. Uh, And and in no time at all, they they brought those people down into utter despair. Utter despair. When you, when you see children sitting on the steps outside their council homes and so on, uh, with, with syringes hanging out their arms, and they're in a stupor, yeah, well, you've got planned genocide. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. I saw that myself. I mean, I'm, I'm from Edinburgh, and yeah. uh, I, I grew up in, in that kind of environment for, for many years, uh, and eventually kind of got myself away into a kind of a, a nicer place to live, shall I say? But um, I, I was brought up on council estates when I was young. Yeah. And then I started, I started working for an insurance company and I used to have to go around, uh, I, I don't know if you, you know the areas of Edinburgh, like Grant and Pilton and mm-hmm. these kind of areas where the tower blocks were. Yeah. And, uh, you, you would walk into these places and there'd be syringes and, uh, I mean, don't we're talking about used tampons, everything would be yes. just lying on the stairwells that the lifts would stink of urine. Uh, and you know, it was just awful. And uh, th- those places are still there. Not a few down, but uh, people think all oh, that's gone away, but, uh, it's just the same as it ever was. I mean, I've, I've never seen anything in those kind of areas get any better for anybody. That's not um, meant to. That's not meant no, to. No, of course, of course. Well, obviously, if, if you look, see, if you if you look at the Darwinist process of of, of the annihilation of of societies, uh, and this is taught again in higher circles today. Um, if you look at the American Indian who lives in similar conditions, by the way, they say the American Indian will not adapt. You see, but they don't want them to adapt, regardless. Um, uh, but you see the same squalor there. And, and, and what you see, and Darwin said it too, a superior culture will always destroy and, and, and cause the destruction of inferior cultures. But by, the, by using the techniques to understand, they can also cause uh, an equal society, not inferior, 
to self-destruct when you destroy its culture, its history, um, but especially the culture itself, which is the glue that holds you all together as a people, you see. They will self-destruct and self-annihilate. This is well understood. They even teach this, by the way. They bring in, I don't know if you know that, they, they brought in big groups of anthropologists who are trained to go in with American troops into uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on. And, and they, they teach the locals and, and hire some of them to, to, to implement these little seeds of disease, you might call them, to help destroy the societies and self-destruct, take away, kick down all the posts that held them up as a people. And, and this is a well-understood technique of total destruction. It's very effective. But I see H.G. Wells talked about it. He was a propagandist for the Fabian Society. And the Fabian Society is, is the left-wing branch of the, of the Royal Institute for International Affairs that also runs the right-wing bunches as well. So, so they were slated for total destruction, Scots and Irish, because they won't adapt totally into submission into this system, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, what, um, what surprises people in England and uh, other parts of Europe when I, I say, well, you know, there's only um, five million people in Scotland. Or yeah. It might be a bit more now, five and a half, six maybe. Uh, and the whole of Ireland, uh, north and south, is only about uh, seven, seven and a half million, something like that. And when you when you look at the land masses of those countries, I mean, I mean, Scotland is a it's a quite a large chunk of the UK, and uh, you know, to have sixty million south of the border and only five million in Scotland, it, it's obvious that people have been um, removed, shall we say, for a better word, or or cleared off the land, um, and and the same in Ireland. I mean, you you drive through Ireland, and there's there's you know there's there's odd houses all over the place, but uh, there are no yeah. real. Um, masses of population and, and where there are in Dublin and uh, Galway and, and uh, Cork there is mass immigration the same as that there is in the UK and I've said to people here if you, if you take the immigrants out of Luton for example which I think uh, equates about 60% of the population in Luton now I think that came out even in the mainstream media that only 40% were indigenous English people That's right. Um, That's right. the streets would be empty yeah and, and Scotland's getting the same they've had articles about uh uh, lots of Eastern Europeans now are flooding into even Scotland. Uh, large Polish populations moving in there too now, and so on. So, so the idea has always been to, to, to eradicate those people. Uh, it's not just happening there too; it's happening in other European countries as well. Uh, with, with and what I've done, you see, under see the Royal Institute for International Affairs, are, are the, um, they're the guys who set up all policies for immigration. And all countries, uh, and and there's other tribal groups. I call them tribal groups who are very important in this too. Who also want these countries totally uh, deculturalized to make it safer for what they say themselves. They lead the charge, actually. Yeah, I think I think it was um, Peter Sutherland, uh, the Goldman Sachs uh, ex Goldman Sachs European uh, executive, who um, who stated that the European Union's job was to destroy the homog- homogeneity of. Uh, the, the sovereign states by mass immigration, um, because you know if if you have a, a strong nation, then they, they stand up against the the collective, if you like. Um, That's right. We'll we'll go to another piece of music and then we'll come back with. Uh, we've got there's so much we could talk about, but um, you, you broached on HGLs a couple of times there, and I wanted to talk to you about uh, kind of famous authors who are who are pushed out into the public sphere as uh, you know classical writers or great poets or whatever uh, or great novelists. Um, and then how they're used to to change culture and propagandise as well. So um, just on the I suppose on the uh, subject of immigration, this is a. Uh 